We are going to be in chapter 3 this morning. 1 Thessalonians is about living for and with Jesus. It's about your life with Jesus on earth while we wait for Jesus to return. And this morning we're going to talk about this section of Scripture and where it tells us about our faith in community. What does it look like for you and I to walk with Jesus, for Jesus, to live with Jesus by faith in community as we wait for Jesus? So Kate's going to read chapter 3, and as she does, I want to invite you to look for the word faith. The word faith is one of the threads that works its way through this chapter. And although uh, Tyler touched on some things in chapter 3 this morning, I'm just going to follow the thread of faith through the chapter and hopefully encourage us that our faith this morning would grow. So I want to pray, and then Kate's going to read. So Holy Spirit, I pray you would do that very thing. Uh, We are all on a faith journey, and we're all in different places this morning with where our faith is at. And so uh, my prayer is that you would speak to each one of us wherever we are at in our journey, and that you would move us along. And that as we read your word this morning about faith and faith in community, that you would help us to understand what's read, that you would help us to really believe it, to believe what your word says, and then not just to believe it, that we would love it, that we would cherish the reality that we read this morning, and then that we'd live it, God, that we'd apply it to our lives, that we'd apply it to our lives in a way that would make our faith in you stronger, more robust, more defined, And that we'd be hungry to continue to grow in our faith in you as a result of our time together this morning. And so be at work. Spirit, be at work. Bring saving faith this morning to some in this room. Bring sustaining faith to some in this room. God, increase all of our faith in some way, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Sorry, it's all my fault. I got it. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remembered us kindly and longed to see us as we longed to see you, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and, and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. This is the word of the Lord. 
How is your faith? How is your faith this morning? Is it alive and vibrant? Is it growing? Or is it tired? Weak? Maybe even a little stagnant? Do you know how to evaluate your faith? Do you know how to assess how your faith is doing? How strong your faith is? How weak your faith is? Do you think that your faith, the way it is today, will stand fast until the end? You see, your faith is the most important thing about you. Or maybe better put, what you have your faith in is the most important thing about you. People put their faith in all kinds of stuff, don't they? I mean, you hear people, may don't use that language, but there's people, they're putting their faith in the government. You put your faith in money. Maybe you put your faith in your job. Or you put your faith in the hope that you can retire from your job. Some of us put our faith in sports or entertainment or leisure. And we put our faith in the things we believe it brings us life, right? We bank on these things to help us to find the things that we want deep in our souls. We, we're looking for satisfaction. And so we turn to different things. It could be your health. You have faith in your health. You can put your faith in other people. That they'll meet those needs that you have. It's very common today to say you should only have, only have faith in you. Have faith in yourself. Faith is a funny word, isn't it? But we can put our faith in all kinds of different things. And I think that what you put your faith in today could determine your happiness, your peace in the future. And I think that's why Paul here, under God's leadership is so concerned about their faith. That's why four times here he talks about their faith, why he wants to come to them to, to help them with their faith. Faith is a really big deal and something that I don't think we talk about that often. I think sometimes we make assumptions about what faith is. And so here, I want to just draw our attention to four things about faith. Four things about faith that I think God puts here to help us assess our faith, to be aware of our faith, to know even how to interact with our own faith. So let's look at them this morning. Four, four things about faith. The first one, the first reality about your faith is this, that your faith is in flux. Your faith is always moving. Your faith is not just fixed in one spot forever. Your faith is alive. And it varies from day to day. And so I see that in a couple of verses here. If you look at verse 2 with me, look what he says in verse 2. He says he wants them to be established and exhorted in your faith. Now, the word established there is the word for making firm or strengthen. He wants to strengthen their faith. The word exhort means to encourage. There's a sense in which Paul realizes their faith needs to be encouraged. It goes on then, the same verse, or actually into verse 3. He says that no one may be moved by these afflictions. So he wants them to be exhorted in their faith so they won't be moved in their afflictions. So I read in that, that means your faith can be moving. Your faith is not standing still. Now look at verse 10. Verse 10 is going to say something similar again. He says he wants to supply what is lacking in your faith. So he makes an assumption 
that in all these believers in the church of Thessalonica that their faith is lacking. I wonder this morning if you're aware of any ways that your faith is lacking. That it needs to be encouraged. That it needs to be exhorted or established in some way. If you don't mind, go back to, or go forward to 2 Thessalonians. Paul writes 2 Thessalonians after 1 Thessalonians. Surprise, surprise. So it's like a follow-up letter. And look what he says in chapter 1, verse 3. Can you look there with me? 2 Thessalonians, second letter, written sometime later. Here's what he says about their faith in 2 Thessalonians 1, 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. It's growing abundantly. Does that describe you this morning? If I spent time with you, a lot of time with you, over the next week or two or three or months, would I say, wow, look at your faith, it's growing abundantly. Is that how you would assess your faith this morning? It's growing abundantly. Well, evidently, Paul went back to see them, got word that their faith had grown abundantly, which tells me that if, if their faith can grow abundantly, then my faith can also shrink rapidly. Right? If it can grow abundantly, then certainly the opposite is true. It can also shrink rapidly. See, the point is that our faith is a living organism. It fluctuates from day in and day out. That's probably important here, just to get a minute, just to define faith. What is faith when we talk about faith? Faith is everything that encompasses your life in Christ, your life in Jesus. Faith is a word that uses to sum up your spiritual connection with Jesus, your walk with Jesus. Tyler pointed out to me this week how beautiful it is that it's not the words good works or your morality, how moral you are. That is what defines your walk with Jesus, right? It's not. It's your faith that defines your walk or sums up your walk with Jesus. So faith. Some of you were here when we went through the Gospel of John. You guys remember that? It was like five years in the Gospel of John or whatever it was we spent together. And Gospel of John was all about believing. He didn't use the word faith. Instead, he used the verb believe, to believe over and over again, 98 sometimes, I think it was in his book. It's active. It was a continuous belief. And John's aim was that we would believe what was written, that he wrote these things so that we would believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you'd have life in his name. In other words, faith had an object. It was Jesus. The eyes of the people in John's time were on Jesus. He said he wanted them to see Jesus' glory. Glory that came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That eyes of faith, believing, would go on Christ. I love how the writer even of Hebrews says, he talks about Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. As if the author of Hebrews and John and so many other places in Scripture tell us that our faith needs to be on Christ. <laughs> and, and not just believe in an intellectual way, but as John teased it out throughout his gospel, with every encounter Jesus had, he was beckoning them to love him with all of their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength, that they would see Jesus as supremely great, unique, unlike anyone else. They'd come to him and say, look at him. He's a one of a kind. There's no one like Christ. That's faith. That's the faith that John described to us. I don't know if 
you've had other people explain faith to you. Sadly, I've had different illustrations used to describe faith. Maybe this one is familiar. I don't know. And if it is, then you'll track along. And if it's not, let me tease it out for you for a moment. But I, I remember learning about faith. Faith is like a chair. Maybe you've heard this. Faith is like a chair. And you say, I believe this chair will hold me up. I believe it will. But it's not faith until I what? Until I sit in the chair. I think this illustration is woefully inadequate. And let me explain why. If you want to stick with the chair illustration, I think I would pose it something like this. Whoa! Check out that chair. It's unbelievable. I have never seen a chair like this before. You get closer. This is a one of a kind. I've never seen craftsmanship like this before. You get a little closer, and you realize, whoa, this chair could save my life. Actually, this chair is life. Death is chasing me down, and this chair could actually save me from death. You get a little closer, and you realize, okay, there's something really special about this chair. Then you get a little concerned because you have this urge that you want to sit on the chair to find life and escape from death, but your concern raises to the surface. And it's not a concern that the chair is going to hold you up. It's the concern you're not worthy to sit in the chair. It's the concern that if I sit in the chair, I might die immediately. It's the concern that maybe this chair can do more than I originally expected. So you look at the chair, you consider sitting in the chair, you're hesitant, but then you find the chair lovingly drawing you to sit, irresistibly drawing you to sit, to the point where you think, I have to sit in the chair. I'll never find life without this chair. I'll never accept, escape death without this chair. And so you slowly move forward to sit in the chair, to put your faith in the chair. And when you do, everything changes. Everything changes. Your entire worldview changes. You find joy where you never found joy before. You all of a sudden find yourself in a trial and somehow you still have peace. You find life in ways you have never found life before. You realize you now finally have everything you have ever wanted and you found it in the chair. Have you sat in the chair? Have you sat in the chair? Have you put your faith in Christ? Have you seen Christ for what he's really worth and sat in the chair and said, yes, he's everything. Everything I've ever wanted. All my joy, all my hope, all my peace, it's here. I found it. If you've sat in the chair, do you find yourself sliding off a little? One cheek on, one cheek off. If you've sat in the chair, do you find yourself getting up in the morning going, I love sitting in the chair. I want to sit in the chair again today. I can't wait to sit in the chair. I know the chair has everything I could ever want. And I see there's some other chairs around. Some other chairs that look pretty good. 
Other chairs that hold out some hope, almost the same amount of hope that this chair holds. Oh, but they're lying. <laughs> so I'm going to stick with this chair. If you've sat in the chair, do you find yourself returning to the chair over and over again? Saying, Christ, I put my faith in you. And in you alone. And in no one else. Because no other chair can save me. No other chair can rescue me. No other chair can protect me. No other chair can satisfy me. No other chair can give me joy or peace or hope. I'm putting everything I have in this chair. So how's your faith this morning? Is it growing? Are you drawn to the chair? Or are you slipping off? Are you finding that other chairs look a little more appealing? Well, we got another problem, and it's not just the fact that our faith is in flux, which it is, it moves. It's weak one day, maybe strong the next. We have a second problem, though, and that there's someone out there who's targeting your faith. So that's the second point this morning, is you've got someone, a tempter, and this tempter is targeting your faith. So here you are, you're sitting in the chair, you're fighting for faith to stay in the chair, not to be distracted by all the other chairs, and now you've got somebody who's trying to knock you off the chair. And so that's what it says. Here's the word tempter, Paul does. That the tempter is there trying to get you off of your chair. So look at verse 5. He says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you. Paul was afraid that the tempter had tempted their faith. Tyler touched on the tempter last week and how he loves to tempt us through trials, through struggling, through distress. This morning I want to talk about how he uses life circumstances and other things to tempt your faith directly. So yes, he does it through distress, right? But problems in your life so that while you're trying to sit in the chair, situations come your way either from God directly or God giving Satan the freedom to do them. Distress and trials come. We promised them, it says in this text, they're coming your way. And Satan's role, his goal, is to try to knock you off the chair. It is to get you to see other chairs as better than Jesus in your life. He wants to move you in the wrong direction. And I want to focus this morning for a minute just on one way he does that, and that is through lies. We know from John that he kills, he destroys and he steals. We also know in John that he lies. He's a liar. I don't know how often you hear something in your own head and you wonder where it came from. Or you hear it in your own head and you think, oh, I just stop thinking that. And how often does the enemy just speak in lies? So I want to share with you some lies. These are my top four lies or five lies that I think he uses. And maybe you can Identify with some of these, and I, I bet you will add your own. But I'm going to give you five categories of ways he lies. The, the first one is this. I think he lies about your trials. I think he lies about your distress and your affliction. And he says things like, you will never get through this. Or, God's punishing you. Or, this situation is hopeless. Hopeless. Another way he lies to us, I think, he lies about who you are. You're a failure. 
You just keep messing up, don't you? You are all alone. You're alone. And you're alone because no one loves you. And you're stuck. You're just stuck where you are and you'll never change. So you might as well just give up. He lies about your future. He tells us things like your future is going to swallow you up. You think things are bad now? You just wait a year. He wants to depress you with a hopeless tomorrow. And he wants you to tease out in your own mind a hopeless future, worst case scenario. And then as you tease it out to make sure that God is not in the picture. So it's bad and there's no God. He lies to you about God. Even just singing this morning, fighting to believe truth. In light of my own sin this past week, I was just sitting there singing and praying and thinking, going, I'm aware of how I've sinned in my mind, how I've sinned with my mouth, how I've sinned inwardly, outwardly this week, and fighting for, oh, and he still loves me. You ever been there? And you hear that voice, he doesn't love you, he is not for you, and he's not with you. You ever think that? That's the enemy trying to knock you off the chair because you've got a target on your back because you got on the chair. No one told you that when you signed up for it, did they? Did they? Believe on Christ and follow him. He's got a beautiful plan for your life. You're going to have a target on your back. A target that's often forged in lies. He likes to speak lies about how God relates to you. He wants us to think things like, I've been doing so well. Being honest with others, giving and money away, being generous and kind, fighting sin. And now this happens. What's up with that, God? Or, I know how much I've sinned. He loves to do that. He loves to lie to you. He wants you to think that your relationship with God is based on you. Somehow on your performance, on your behavior, on how you act. That's what he wants you to think. And you've got to fight that to say, no, my relationship with God is based in Christ. It is what he has done for me. He is my rock. I have faith in him. I sit on his chair and him alone. It has nothing to do with my behavior or my works. And you've got to fight the lie because Satan wants to lie to you about how God relates to you. And then he wants to lie to you, too, about promises that God makes to you. And I think he often does it by trying to convince you that God has made promises to you that God has never made. I feel like I experience this one often. When things don't go my way, and I have a certain outcome that I desire for something to happen, and it doesn't happen, and I hear things like, don't worry, God has something better for you. That may not be true. 
lie. When you don't get the job you want or the car you want or the house you want or your health doesn't get better. And he wants you to believe, well, Jesus has something better for you. Not true. Because he leaves you then putting your faith in the something better. And the reality is you already have the something better. (laughs) You've got Jesus. So you've got the better. All he wants to do is get your eyes off of Christ and onto whatever that better is. If he just improves this, if this just changes, if this just gets better, I just want this to happen. And then I just go, don't worry, God's got something better. No. What you need to hear is, you've got God. You've got Christ. That is the better. That's the chair. It's what he's already done for you. It's who he is that already is the better. The word of God never promises that if God closes a window, that he will open a door. (laughs) That is nowhere in scripture, just to make sure we're all on the same page. You won't find it. I looked this week just to make sure. (laughs) That hidden proverb, you know? I I didn't find it. If you find it, you let me know. It does promise that if God closes the window, that he'll be looking through the window with you. It promises that if he slams the door in your face and catches the house on fire, that he'll be there with you. That's what he promises. He promises if he boards up all the windows and knocks the house down, that he'll be there for you. That's a promise, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He promises that he'll be everything your soul desires as you put your faith in him and as you trust him. So... The tempter wants you to sit waiting for the better when you already have it. What a stinker, huh? Oh, how we need to remind ourselves that we already have the better. So there's five little lies. You probably have your own list. My encouragement to you this morning is to be on the lookout for them. Be on the lookout for the ways things pop into your mind. Or others, people say things to you that take your mind off your faith in the chair and onto something else, as if something else is going to really satisfy you. Because it's not. It's not. It can't. Jesus is the life, and we need, and we need him. We just need him and more of him. So your faith is in flux. You have a target on your back, by the tempter, yet God has a perfectly designed, well-crafted way to help protect your faith. And that way is through community. Through community. So number three, your faith really is a community faith. Now I want to show you where I see this. It's so obvious here, it screams and yet I completely missed it. It was so easy to miss. I'm going to read to you this section again, most of it that Kate read this morning. I'm going to start in verse 6. But I want you to be on the lookout for the word we, us, you, yours, all these personal pronouns, plural personal pronouns, 36 of them in eight verses. It's almost as if Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, intentionally and unnecessarily overuses the pronouns we, our, yours, to make a point that faith, the thread through this passage, 
is anchored or submerged in a group, in people, in a community. So look at him with me. Verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress, we have been comforted about you through your faith. I mean, just that last sentence, it could have just read, we have been comforted through your faith. But he adds this about you. It's like he's going to stick as many you's and we's and ours in the sentence as much as possible. Almost to the point where it doesn't even make sense. It almost becomes annoying. Like, you could have saved me five minutes of reading if you just put the ones that were necessary. Verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. I mean, come on. If you don't get the community through the pronouns, you get it through his earnest praying that he wants to see them face to face as if somehow faith grows in community. Look at verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. Just in case you missed it, this is about one another. And for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with, in case you didn't get his community, all the saints. I'm sorry, but I think Paul's trying to make a point that could so easily be missed. And that is in this thread of community and this thread of faith that's in this passage that it's meant to be lived out in some group of people, in a group of saints, in a group of believers. And somehow that's a key to protecting you from the enemy who's targeted your back to try to knock you off the chair. And so he uses all these pronouns. And I conclude from this then that faith and community go hand in hand. And the tempter then must want to isolate you. I think a key strategy for him to knock you off the chair, the target on your back, is to isolate you. He wants to keep you from other believers so that you will not be encouraged in your faith. He wants to isolate you. He wants to remind you of the times you've been hurt by others because that's happened by everybody in this room. You've been hurt by others and the temptations to think, I'm not going to let that happen again. And so you isolate yourself. And then the enemy goes, ha, ha, ha. That's exactly what I wanted. That's his plan to isolate, and to, to keep you out of community. And listen, this is just yet another place in God's word that supports why our church mission is about gospel and community and mission. It's all three, because community is a key factor in this. So listen, your pastors, Tyler Jordan and I, want more than anything for you to be involved in some way, in community. Getting together with some other subset of people that love Jesus for this very reason. Because faith goes hand in hand with community. They work together. And by isolating you, I want you to see what you'll be missing out on. Look at verse 7. 
Verse 7 tells us one of the purposes of community. And for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and afflictions, we have been comforted about you. How? Through your faith. So when we're with one another, there should be a comforting that comes. Do you ever need to be comforted? There's, there's pain, there's suffering, there's trial. Things going on in your life that really stink, right? You need comfort. Your faith gets comfort from others, from community. Just seeing each other's faith, it brings comfort. Look at verse 9. It seems that thanksgiving is another part of the puzzle in community, that faith thrives in an atmosphere of thankfulness. Has, has your faith ever been weak and you're around somebody who starts to express thankfulness to God for the things he's doing in their lives? What does that do to your faith? Right? So thankfulness is another piece of the blessing that comes. Look at verse 9. There's joy, he says. There's gladness that comes. Some of you are just naturally happy people. I hate you. Some of you are. Your disposition is just more happy and others of you just have a no face all the time. But I think all of us want a sincere joy. You know what I'm talking about. The happiness that just underlies that current that runs under your soul even when everything around you is just going south. And you're just like, yeah, it's going bad, but you know what? I'm all happy. Look, one of the ways you get that is through Community. One of the ways that your faith is infused with joy so that you, you follow Christ more is when you're with others who share with you the joy of what God is doing in them. And then verse 10 basically tells us the same thing. It talks about supplying what is lacking in your faith. Paul wants them to get together. Why? Because there's something lacking and I want to supply that lack. The word supply there is a word for strengthen or to mend like a net. He recognized something is lacking, something is poor or insufficient, and he wants to mend it. Since there's no third to fifth grade class today, I thought I'd bring third to fifth grade class here. The word for mend literally is the word for mending a net. Hmm. Can I pick on some wind kids? Come on up here. Levi, Micah, right? Come on. Oh, you're not. You're too old for that. Okay, you still come up here. Come on, help me. Maybe you can help me get this over his head. Sure. Turn around. So the word, the word there really is the word for mending, and it's the word they would use for mending a tent. And so the idea of this is, if this hurts, let me know. Does that hurt? I'm now going to pick you up. No, just kidding. Little, little, thank you. It smells like fish. Ugh, sorry, dude. My bad. The picture I want to paint for us is this. Paul is saying that there is uh, something lacking in your faith, something insufficient in your faith. And the word they use is for supplying that need is the mending, like, like you'd mend a tent or you'd mend a, a, a net, a fishing net that has holes in it. And, and so the picture that Paul, I think, is trying to paint for them, that I think they might have gotten was, this is your faith, and it's on you, but it's got holes in it. And you're unable from the inside to mend some of those holes. And so God sets up this thing called community so you can be with other people who can go, you got a hole there, Jack. 
how can I supply what, you're, what are you missing there? Or maybe for him to say, I, I really feel like I'm struggling in faith to believe that Jesus is all I need in light of this situation. And others can go, well, let, me, let me help supply with you. Let me mend that hole for you. And so this is what you need. You need community. You need others to help you mend because you can't mend your own net. Does that make sense? And so Paul goes as far to say that he is praying. Do you see the language in that? Uh, was it verse 9? Where he talks about, I'm, I'm eagerly, I'm earnestly desiring, I'm praying with all my heart that I get to see you. I want to be with you so that I can help mend your faith. And I wonder if we pray that way. Do you pray that way for others? So I don't want to make you stand there all day. <laughs> Thank you. Good job, Micah. But do you pray that way? I mean, that's a unique way to pray. He, he recognizes I need others and others need me, and so I pray earnestly, let me be together. We need to be together. I want to be with others so that I can supply what is lacking and so I can get what I need, what is lacking in my faith. So we need this. I don't know about you. I need comfort and thanksgiving and joy. I need others to help me to supply what's lacking in my faith. And to do this, we get together and we speak Jesus to one another. So we're speaking the faith of Christ to one another and not other things. Because we don't need to add lies that Satan's already bombarding on us. We need to hear about Christ and the truth of that. I remember, this is going back 30-some years I remember this conversation vividly. I wish I could remember the, all the details, but I was with a friend. He was in his early 20s, and his wife was pregnant. And he was sharing with me how uh, the pregnancy was, was, there were some scary things going on in the pregnancy. They weren't sure what's going to happen with the baby and the health of the baby. And he said, he was talking about how they're doing all these tests, and, and some things are just unsure. And I remember saying something to him like, well, I'm sure the baby will be okay, and that's really all that matters. I said something like that. And I remember him saying, I remember what he said to me more than what I said to him. He responded to me with, that's not all that matters. He goes, all that matters is that I have Jesus. That's all that matters. If God chooses to take this baby, I've got Jesus and Jesus is better. And I remember in my soul, my faith being shifted that day to realizing that I need Christ more than I need anything else. As a young something 20-year-old, I remember just going, wow, that's it. I need Christ. I need him to change me. In that moment, I think my friend supplied what was lacking in my faith. He did. He supplied it. Something was lacking, and he supplied it. And the lacking was, it was easy for me to take my eyes off of Christ as everything and onto circumstances, hoping they would go a certain way. So I ask you this morning, how is your faith? I'm going to save point four for next week. But I just want to ask you, how's your faith? Are you really aware of the target that's on your back? Maybe you are. Maybe you're aware of the lies. And this morning is a great chance for you to say you're not going to believe them anymore. You can believe what's true. Maybe you find that you did sit in the chair and you had faith, but your faith right now is weak or wandering or tired. Let's, let some of us help you get back on the chair. Let us help you. This is the place for weak faith. Did you know that? I actually was thinking about making some t-shirts. 
And having him at the back door, just say, leave me alone. <laughs> For those of you that come on a Sunday morning and you barely get here because you know you need to be encouraged through the singing and other things, but inside you just want to be left alone. You ever come? I've done that. I remember standing here one Sunday, this is a couple of years ago, and just being like, I think I confessed to Helen Jordan, I just don't want to be here. I just don't want to be here this morning. See, I can't just stay home. I could have faked sick. You ever feel that way? Like, I wish there was a way you could come, even though you don't want to, but you know you should because it'll help your faith with some kind of marker so we know you just need your faith encouraged. Cut the small talk. <laughs> right? Do you ever feel that way? Like, if you're going to talk to me, just, just, just give me some really good, powerful Jesus right now. <laughs> Because I don't want to talk about stuff. I just can't. And somehow we've got to label ourselves so that I know to leave you alone. Unless i got something to say like that. And you might need the same thing. So if somebody wants to design t-shirts, go for it. <laughs> you need community, my friends. We need it. And so maybe, maybe for you it's not the target on your back as much as you know. You just haven't been around people as much as you need to. And maybe you just need more people to encourage your faith. So I encourage you this morning. Find others and just... Let's just be, let's be weird and just say, can you just encourage my faith for a minute? Just tell me some stuff about Jesus to encourage my faith. Tell me, tell me the joy you're finding in Christ. Tell me, tell me how you're finding thanksgiving going on in your soul. How, how, is, how are others supplying what's lacking in your faith? Where is your faith tempted? Like, just, just cut to the chase and help each other in community. So I don't know, maybe you've got a target on your back and you're just aware of all the lies racing through your head. Maybe for you, what you know, I just need more community. I don't know what it is, but I want to encourage you this morning. Don't leave here without some idea in your own head of what it looks like for you to supply or get supplied what's lacking in your faith. So we're going to take a minute. I've got two questions. Jordan, did you add a brilliant one for me? No? All right. I've got two questions. I don't know if they're the best questions at all, but I'd like you to take a minute. Just pray. Pray. Think about these two questions. If you have an idea, what's the status of your faith? Just write it down. Don't be ashamed if you write down very weak. Join the club. There's days when everyone is there, and there's others in this room we're going to write down very weak. Others of you are soaring high. And then do you have any idea of how you're being tempted to get your eyes off of Jesus, your faith off of Christ? If you're aware of those things, there's something powerful just about writing that down and confessing it. God, these are the lies I'm believing. I don't want to believe them anymore. See, the beauty, I oh, mean, I keep going. The, the beauty of this is you realize that Jesus is more familiar with the tempter than you are, right? You know, he created the tempter. And then he spent time in the garden for 40 days with the tempter. And he won. And then when he died and went to the grave, when he rose from the dead, he defeated the tempter. <laughs> so the tempter's got nothing to do but throw lies. But you've got resurrection power in you through Christ to battle the lies. So this isn't like a one-on-one -on -one fight where it's kind of equal weight, equal skill, equal talent, equal age. This is defeated enemy, resurrection, Holy Spirit power, and all he's doing is lobbing lies. Knock him out of the park. Just get rid of him. Resist them. Fight them. Get others to fight them with you. That you'd believe what's true. So let's take a minute. Consider those questions, then we're going to sing song together.